scratch and smooth. Hello. Today we help celebrate a significant birthday milestone for this edition's special guest, whilst also toasting close to five decades of service to one of the most famous and respected broadcasters in the world. His contribution to the face of British television and beyond is undeniable, as indeed is his unbridled and some might say unrivalled enthusiasm of the arts. Our guest appears to be as comfortable doing a link to camera dressed as Santa Claus as he is interviewing Cuban ballet superstar Carlos Acosta, British film director Mike Lee, or Uganda dictator Idi Amin. But although he remains a significant force in arts programming, he has in recent years also been perceived by some as a rather grand and divisive character. So, will the real Alan Yentob please stand up? There's no one quite like Bette Midler. Don't you know who I am? In 1999, he scandalised the art world by striking down Pope John Paul II with a meteorite. Catalan's even been known to steal another artist's work and pass it off as his own. There's a, there's a fly floating around in my milk. And he's put, there's a foreign body in it, you see, and he's getting a lot of milk. It's kind of how I felt. back of one of those limousines was a journalist. Were you shagging Susan George was the question. I ask you only to look at it at some point and reflect on what was going through your head. Don't put me on the spot, Alan. I'm trying to be a gentleman here. charity has been shut down and the allegation, the accusation is that it primarily did so because of financial mismanagement within it. Right, I am saying... you were chairman of the trust. Yes, so can I just say, I did, it is not, there is not financial mismanagement, okay? BBC Television Centre. I think I'm entitled, me and many thousands like me, to wax a little sentimental as we take our leave of this historic monument which began life over half a century ago as little more than a question mark. The BBC's Alan Yentob in all his guises. Well, in an unprecedented move and for one night only, SNS Online takes over the schedules of BBC television to find out more. To find out more. To find out more. And now on BBC One, I mean SNS Online, Alan Yentob talks about his life and work with Nick Randall. 
Alan Yentob, welcome to the programme. There's clearly an awful lot to pack in uh, with high-profile work on screen and off. Uh, controller of BBC Two, controller of BBC One, director of drama, entertainment and children's, creative director and uh, series editor of Imagine. But what I'd like to do is to start by, as we always do, turning back the clock to look at those early days, family, friends, places, etc., that began to influence and form uh, the young you. Well, I was born in London. My family were immigrants. They came from Iraq, but they were Jewish immigrants who came from Iraq. And then at the age of about sort of four, I, I we went to Manchester where my father's business was. They were in the textile business in Bolton. And, um, you know, as I've said a, a lot of the time, I was sort of, you know, I never used to know who I would wake up next to because there were lots of sort of immigrants coming in and they would sort of share a bed, you know. And um, this was your father looking after his friends, presumably. Yeah, my father looking after his friends and all of that. Eventually, I I went to, uh, you know, I went to a school. I went to a place called King School Ely, which was a sort of, you know, relatively minor public school near Cambridge. You know, I was yes, I was interested in music, and I remember sort of key moments in my childhood where where you you're too young, most of your listeners to. I, I doubt that. Remember that? No, they are. Basically, the the Munich crash and Manchester United yeah. in the school school ground. I remember that vividly. I remember the death of President Kennedy and every Beatles record that came out. You know, that was kind of basically my. Funnily enough, I've just been on the phone to someone also who was at school with me. He was there was a was a picture that of us all together. He was one of a a pair called Storm and Poe. They were called. You know, they they were part of the. They they were responsible. H- Hygnosis, they were called. They made the albums of the Pink Floyd. Okay, records. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and we were there, and I happen to be making a film about Pink Floyd right now. And uh, Poe is busy, and I've got this picture of us together when we were sixteen years old. Oh, wonderful! <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, go on. Are you a frustrated rock star, sir? No, absolutely. <laughs> okay, just not. wanted to confirm. Absolutely not. No, in fact, what I wanted to do, I wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted to change the world. I, I wanted to get out there and kind of save lives and transform the world. But I kind of diverted when I got to university. I went to Leeds University, and um, I went to university. I was pretty young. I was just, you know, barely seventeen, and. Um, I studied law, but when I was there, I, I actually got very involved with drama and um, both directing and performing and writing. And one year, you know, quite early on, we won the National Union of Students Sunday Times Drama Competition, which is still there today. And the, this was a, a play by the German writer called Max Frisch. It's called The Chinese Wall. I was on stage and I never got off stage. I was chain smoking throughout the whole <laughs> venture. And then I, I was on stage in the West End, even though having been given a not particularly good review by a man called Harold Hobson, who was the theatre critic of the Sunday Times at the time, a rather condescending review. Oh, God. I was always afraid I'd be late because if I wasn't on stage, there would be no performance because I was never off stage. You were it, yeah. I was it. Yeah, and then... Um, after that, I, I I had two sort of aspirations. I'd given up on the law. Um, why, why was that? I, I, I sort of found it un, I wasn't inspiring enough, and I had been diverted. My interest in, in culture and and stuff was... Um, Did was, you feel you could change the world through the power of television? 
I don't know. Do you know something? I think it, I was just sort of preoccupied with the things I was interested in, which was directing um, drama, often new plays. Uh, I did a Polish play by a man called Slavomir Mrozek, which hadn't been done. It was a very adventurous production. Took it to Edinburgh. And, um, and was this you performing as well as uh, behind well, the scenes? Mainly, well, I was performing. That's when I how I started. But my interest was often, was more, much more... Uh, to do with directing. That's what I was really interested in doing. And in a sense, that just as you see me now, you know, both presenting and on on air, I, I'm actually, my passion is behind camera, most of it, you know. And um, eventually I, I applied for the BBC, what they were called the general traineeships, which they were at that time, which were highly, many people wanted them. And uh, lots of people. And you, the rule was you had to have been to Oxford or Cambridge to get them. Well, I, I hadn't. I went to Leeds University. I don't. I doubt that many people on that board could have spelt the word Leeds or known where it was. Um, but there's also a skill to being good on a board. And a skill which I would suggest even today is very important to, to differentiate between people. you When you've got lots of people applying for jobs, you need... When you write your application form, it needs to be a sort of needs to capture the attention of whoever it is who's looking at. Them. Absolutely. And uh, I think I also applied for the Royal Court, and I, I you know, a traineeship there. And I, I what happened is that um, I, I got, I got both, and I decided to take the BBC general traineeship. And it's interesting that because many years later, I gave the inaugural speech at. BAFTA for the BAFTA lecture, which happens every year. This is still now, we're talking at least 15, 16 years ago, maybe more. And obviously, I was dredging around trying to think what I was going to talk about. And I thought, well, it'd be interesting to know, why did I get that job, given I was the only person I think who'd ever got that job from a not from Oxbridge at the time. And I checked out and the BBC sort of has an anal memory and a department where they keep all the bits of paper. And I found this handwritten, rather messy application form, which I which I had. And now I rarely give a speech, which when I'm not when I don't use it, particularly when there are young people around. And I've got in my time lots of doctorates or given given away degrees and stuff. And I often ask to talk, and I often do it. And when I got it, I was quite impressed myself at the chutzpah of it because it said <laughs> why do you think you should be considered for this one of these jobs given that they are rare and everyone aspires to them we have to turn down many people what are your qualifications what's so special about you sort of rather provocative statement at the front to put most people <laughs> off and I said my first sentence literally was well at the age of eight uh, I was in the Merry Wives of Windsor playing one of the wives and one of my contemporaries said to me, you have lovely legs, you should be in show business and that's why I've applied. <laughs> and I tell people afterwards, and here I am, I got the job, I'm the director of television, so <laughs> must have must have worked. We look at Alan Yentob's early career with the BBC now as SNS Online goes back in time to those salad days. 
So you became a trainee uh, at World Service, is that right? I, yes, I started at the World Service. A trainee sort of moves from place to place, but I spent about a year in the World Service, and I loved it. Mm. And, I mean, my view of being in Bush House, it was an amazing place to be. It really was, actually. Beautiful building. Well, both a beautiful building and, and actually the, 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 to be go from room to room and to hear different voices, different languages, um, to be talking about a place where... All human life was there. They used to say this about the news of the world before they dumped it. But basically what happened is that there were features on science, on history. There were people from the African service there from, you know, across the world. And um, it had a pulse to it because it never closed. I know this building that we're in now in Broadcasting House, you know, very few people left at night. Obviously, the World Service is still here. That place was pulsating. Uh, you know, 24-7. And in fact, the phrase 24-7 could have been invented to describe what happened in Bush House because it never closed. And I remember that one of my first gigs was sort of unbelievable. Really. I had a microphone and I had a, a tape recorder, which I had to use, and I was a pretty clumsy person. And you had to edit in those days, you know, yeah. with razor I've, blades. I've done many edits. <laughs> yeah, razor blades and, and tape. You cut know, cut and many th fingers as well. Cut, so have I, yeah. And... Um, Amongst the two projects which I'm most memorable to me was one day when I interviewed on the same day Idi Amin, the dictator from Uganda, and Harold Pinto. Difficult for me to say who was most difficult and intimidating of <laughs> the two of them. Well, I mean, were you in the same room as these people? I was in the same room as Harold Pinto. I oh. wasn't necessarily in, but I, I collected them. That's probably the and best then put choice together to. as a, you know, Harold always was, but we became good friends over the years yeah. and... I didn't continue my relationship with Idi Amin, I can tell you that. Uh, and so that was my beginning. And um, hmm. I spent, I did, did a film, uh, not a film, but a, a radio program down a coal mine at the time when the mines were under threat. That was really interesting and cutting that together myself. Everything was a sort of one-man show. And it's very interesting to me that because we're now entering a world which is not dissimilar. You know, we're entering a world uh, which one person or can actually make a film by themselves. I know? mean, one of the things I was going to ask you later was, do you like uh, working alone? I don't call it alone. I, I, I like working with teams. It's a complicated story. What I'm saying is that that everyone today is empowered to storytell. You don't have to go onto YouTube and see that. Mm -hmm. So we can't be complacent about what we do in the world, the professional world, because other people are doing really interesting things. If you want to look at what's satirical and effective about Trump, uh, you know, you only have to go onto the internet and see stuff which is hilarious and clever and a, a lot cleverer than a lot of things on TV, you know, and uh, and satirical too. And, um, you know, with Final Cut Pro, with the small cameras. And one of the things to jump ahead that I'm most proud of was the fact that at a certain point I did a thing called Video Diaries. Which is a series of programmes in which I gave... I got program makers, not program makers, sorry, take that back. I felt the documentaries had become rather routine and rather predictable. Good, there was a series called 40 Minutes, exceptionally yeah. good on BBC Two, but it got into a, into a sort of routine. Similar subjects, similar treatments, all 40 minutes in length. I've never abided by any lengths, either on Arena. Well, clearly on Arena, you didn't. <laughs> I didn't, and I don't that much on, on Imagine, though I think... If it gets boring, everyone has a right to say to you, stop that, you know, we, we don't want any more. But the truth is that um, the what happened is that when cameras 
became cheap and it was possible to have TV quality. And we are now talking 25 years ago. Um, we're talking about the mid-80s when the, the technology became available. Well, high eight was a pretty good quality yes, for, the, for the time. and they, the time. Although that wasn't used in the same way. This video diaries, may, we won many um, awards with, with the, this series. These were made by people who had a passion for something. Very often they were off on a, on a big venture. They took the camera with them. We trained them to use the camera. They would come back maybe a year later or whatever with their story. We would then support them with an editor and they would go into a cutting room and make it. Well, now you don't even be, need to be supported with an editor. You can just make it yourself. But a lot of those films were outstanding uh, and, um, as I say, got pre-Italias and Emmys and all kinds of things. And it was a sort of reminder of a world that we're now coming to. So anyway, having arrived in the BBC, I was there, and then I went to the arts department from yeah. from from uh, the world. Could State. I just say about the video diaries? Do you feel that, like you know, the man on the streets taught the BBC a lot about uh, program making in the way that they they only could by just being themselves? I think what it tells you, and what I've always believed very passionately, is that people say, uh, "Is it difficult to find stories, even for imagine, or do you have to whatever?" And the answer is. There's a story in everything. You know, there's a story in this. Uh, absolutely. There's a story absolutely. in this. There's a story in the spoon. There's, in fact, I did when I took over BBC Two. I, that curiosity, that drive of telling people, do you, are you listening properly? Are you looking at the world properly? Because very often they don't. I made a series called Design Classics. I had a 10-minute a, a series called uh, the Extreme Object of Desire, which was all about just something that you hadn't noticed, which was special, and someone would make a story about it or a film about it. I had video diaries. So I tried to sort of disrupt, if you like, the the sort of the complacency, if you like, of, yeah. I don't want to say this critically of BBC Two, but at the time there was a problem. I also introduced all those, um, the, the twos that you see today are part of a, a family which I began in the mid-80s. I think it's fair to say that you gave BBC Two a, a kick up the jacks, if you pardon my... Yeah. my Although I was very exceptionally fond of one of my predecessors who was called Brian Wenham, who, who originally was died, sadly, prematurely. But, but it was time for change and Channel 4 was coming and it was important to do something different. And I, I think the it's interesting about this idea of marketing and brands and branding. The truth is that those, um, the titles, the early BBC Two logo was so dull, it was unbelievable. I mean, it really was static, dull. And of course, it was not, it, it had nothing to do with what the channel's aspirations might be. The, the twos that I introduced, which were sort of playful and subversive and different, all of them different, which we all adore. Yeah, and we're, we're about creating different moods, you know, and using the two to animate the two, to bring it to life. And actually, the twos were ahead of the game in terms of the channel's inventiveness, and I wanted us to live up to this new logo. And I think we did. And, and um, Of course, they've brought quite a few of those back now. We're seeing yeah, those again because yeah, they're so popular. In fact, they've never, they never departed from them on two particularly. They always were the twos. It was that... There was the graphic and the shape, but they've now brought some of them back. It's absolutely true of the original ones. But the, the idea, it was an idea to be extended and developed, not an idea that had to stay as it was.
former television executive shines a light at a pop icon now on SNS Online, discussing all things Cracked Actor. So you've been heavily involved in some wonderful, iconic art strands of the 70s, 80s, Omnibus and Arena, which apparently was a, initially a magazine show until you changed it to be far more focused, um, which, which was very much free-form, but the lengths differed and it could be about anything. Um, what had happened is I'd made, there'd been other arts programmes like the Review Programme and things like that, which were essentially magazine programmes as well as Omnibus. And I, what happened is I had made something weird happened when I, I had made a short film, which in itself was a kind of parody of arts programmes. Is that uh, the Dave called, Prowse one? Yes. Yeah. The, have you seen that at all? I haven't seen it, but I know this leads on to the yes. one we, we're yeah. all going to talk about. <laughs> yes. Uh, and it was called Profile of a Monster, because you do... And this was a guy who was a rather benign figure who was also uh, being used, Dave Prowse, to promote... Um, crossing the road carefully and dangerously. Rem- At the same time, he had a double life because he was a monster. So there was I- I- images of him and sequences of him at home with his family, but storming through a door, and then you'd cut to he would be Frankenstein's monster instead of what he was. And it, So it was a playful film, a witty one. And then, and this is what and David Bowie saw this. Is this true? Him. David Bowie yeah. saw this and then uh, wanted you to make a documentary about him. Yes, he asked me if I'd like to meet up, and would I, he liked what he saw. And I mean, thought, what a compliment! Yeah, it, it kind of was. Maybe Fantastic. it was a rash judgment to make. That he did. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> I went, I went to uh, New York, saw him there. And I originally, I was, and we talked, and he said, "Do you want to come along and do it?" I said, "Yeah." Made it for I was making it for Omnibus, and. Uh, Originally, I was going to call it the collector. That was my idea. You know, I, I sort of start off with a concept of what I want to do, but I don't, you know, I don't const- constrain myself. I just start with that idea. Collector, because he was always curious, always looking at other people's ideas, stealing them, transforming them, changing them. But then I decided to call it Cracked Actor uh, because of him about going to America to get rid of Ziggy Stardust and all these other characters who had come out of Ziggy or come out of that period and that consciousness. The thing I asked him to do was to, I asked him, would he mind making a a face mask or a death mask or a life mask, whatever you want to call it. And that takes quite something to get put someone someone through that. But he said yes. And um, he never asked me what I was going to do or how I was going to do it. He just went along with it. And we made that... And that's the opening sequence of Cracked Actor is this sequence of the of the death mask, of a life mask. And um, it was, you know, very powerful and very valuable and it told a story. And then I, I spent weeks with him. But it made it too far Became the special man Then we were Ziggy's band Ziggy really sang Screwed up eyes and screwed down hairdo like some cat from Japan Oh, he could kill them by smiling He could leave them to hang well, Ziggy became a spectacular success and so ironically did his alter ego, David Bowie. And then at the height of his fame, in the presence of thousands of screaming fans, David Bowie killed him off. And I would often, my interviews with him would happen three in the morning sometimes. Uh, He was going through a difficult stage. He was sort of dispensing with all these other characters, but this brilliant tour 
uh, of his, um, um, which um, went th across America, the Diamond Dogs tour, in which he said goodbye to all these characters. And they were the, the sort of stars of my show, really. There were no interviews with managers or other performers or actors. It was just David, the songs, the lyrics, um, the landscape of America, the environment, and the fans, mainly these younger fans who were just obsessed with him and who he gave some hope to, you know, gave a sort of a sense of, you know, what they could be or what was possible the life of the imagination. I think we all feel the same way, don't we? I mean, yeah. it's pretty... Music sing. Music in general is an important part of all our lives. Yeah, you exactly. Know, we're big rock fans. I, and Bowie, we, is, we thought, was the best. God. He intentionally keeps himself a mystery. Yeah, yeah right. Because he, he's always being somebody else on stage or trying to be somebody else on stage. And he, keep, he keeps his, his own personality a complete mystery. So it just it adds to the uh, aura and makes him, makes him a more interesting person. He seems, you know, quite sort of, shall we say, wired during some of those interviews. I was assuming it was more because he just had so much to think about and he was running on little sleep. But did you think the substance abuse side was uh, affecting his um, relationship with his fans and with the music itself? I think it was uh, affecting his relationship with himself more than anything else. Sure. I mean, I think I think he, he, he was going through this period of transformation. And yes, his, his diet... Uh, was sort of really kind of milk and cocaine, really, were the two... Th and the know, odd fly floating in the milk. <laughs> and the fly floating in the milk. Since you've been in America, you seem to have picked up on a lot of the idioms and themes of American music and American culture. How's that happened? There's a, there's a fly floating around in my milk, and he's put... There's a foreign body in it, you see, and he's getting a lot of milk. That's kind of how I feel. A foreign body here, and I just—I couldn't help but soak it up. It, you know, I hated it when I first came here. I couldn't see any of it. Look, a wax museum. Imagine having a bleeding wax museum out in the middle of the desert. <laughs> Think it'd melt, wouldn't you? <laughs> this has become legendary. <clears throat> I met. I'd known. Kate Moss, other people as well. Many performers and well-known people have come up to me and said to me, oh, my God, that film, it sort of, it changed my life, you know. And Kate Moss could quote from, from lots of the little bits as a fly uh, walking around in my milk, and that's how I felt, you know. And there's a wax museum in the middle yeah. of the desert. You'd think it would melt. These well, things have... Cons you know. Considering he was, you know, possibly quite buzzy at some of these times, he was very articulate and oh, very, yeah. very uh, strong. Yeah, I, I felt you know personality was. No, he was, and I think you know he was ready to talk, and um, there was a kind of intimacy to what he said, and a vulnerability to him as well, and um, and uh, it was a film which even today, you know, most weeks someone set, someone stops me in the street and says, oh whatever, or if I go to Glastonbury, for instance, it's sort of, you know, that's all they care about, you know. <laughs> so. <laughs> So as I said, Arena was very much a sort of free-form documentary of a length differed and it could be any potential subject. And the BBC seemed to allow you to, to essentially get on with it. I mean, to have such editorial freedom must have been very empowering. It was very empowering. It's absolutely true. And 
In fact, that all credit for that must go to um, Brian Wenham, who was the controller at the time. I mean, there was no fixed spot, fixed time for Newsnight at that time. It was there, but it was no fixed time. And it, he permitted me to sort of run programs at different lengths. And sometimes, you know, later on I brought him, when I was running BBC Two, I would bring 10-minute pieces in to kind of bridge gaps and stuff like that. But essentially, um, so I believed in short form and long form even then. I believe in different lengths, you know. Uh, rather than the kind of monotony of every half hour and a half hour. But that license to play, as I call it, which and that trust was incredibly important to me. And so, yes, Arena, originally my way, everyone thought it would be, you know, should it be 10 minutes long or whatever? And, you know, then we thought, no, maybe it will last a whole hour. And, you know, so my way went out, got a huge audience. Films like The Chelsea Hotel. In fact, Thomas Wolfe wrote, You Can't Go Home Again, or most of it, in this hotel. And both Brendan Bean and uh, Dylan Thomas stayed here when they came to New York. They drank themselves to death at the White Horse Tavern on 11th Street in Hudson, and then they'd come and collapse here. High and low culture companions sitting together. Just, uh, it was never, I think that's what was different about it, although some of that used to happen elsewhere. It was a sort of sense in which you could surprise people you could bring in lots of new filmmakers who hadn't done things and often need a lot of help to do so. Um, it's rather extraordinary that Anthony Wall, who was uh, involved, who I recruited early on, and his another colleague of ours called Nigel Finch, who tragically died but was um, of AIDS, um, you know, in the 1980s, but he was a fantastic colleague as well. And Anthony is still the now the editor of Arena and has been for you know, since I left, <laughs> I mean, really. I mean, that's one thing I noticed with your the art strands you've worked on, that there are some shows which are incredibly popular characters, like uh, well, David Bowie and Rod Stewart. Um, and then there are others which are obviously far more, um, you, you could have the artists and all the rest of it, but you don't seem to delineate between the, the two, and it, which allows for... I'm not, I'm not explaining myself. But it allows but... people to graze and not to Absolutely. come to conclusions yeah. about what's good and what's not good. I mean, we know now that, you know, Bob Dylan has just got the Nobel Prize. The fact that he rather rather preposterously didn't come and get it is another matter. Mm. But the truth is that within popular culture, there are great, great talents, you know. And um, I think the real issue is also trying to you're talking to an audience, trying to bring them together, trying to get them to try things they wouldn't normally normally try. And in fact, the mix of things on, on Arena attracted a lot of people, a lot of interest. And in particular, some of my friendships came through that. For instance, Stanley Kubrick, who was a big fan of the Arena program and liked the mix of things in it, liked its playfulness and its boldness. And um, really, he sought me out, Stanley, and we became very close friends. And I was at his funeral, which was in his house when he died. And the one film that was made with him, which was directed by his daughter, was produced by both Stanley and I. And um, it was called Making the, the Making of the Shining. And why is the script in multicolored pages? Anything? Because each time you make a new version, at first you get very methodical. And each time you make a new version, you put in a different color. After a while, you know, you're lucky if people get copies of the changes. 
It's so that you start with white, then you go yeah. to blue, then pink, then green, then yellow. Yeah. But what it's, happens? It's so that when everybody's got their script out, you can look right over and know if they've got the latest version. But of course, you never have the latest blue version. Blue or yellow here. isn't significant no. to the, it's just colors. I quit using my script. I just take the ones <laughs> they type up each day. <laughs> Aren't you exaggerating a little bit? No. no. <laughs> and the other incredible thing I learned from from Stanley, um, once again, you know, this idea of, you know, you're working day and night. Stanley's sort of the people who funded him, you know, the, the studios were in America, but he, in Los Angeles, he was in London. Actually, he was in St. Albans. Mm. And St. Albans became um, whatever Stanley wanted it to be. You know, it could be Vietnam. In fact, it did become <laughs> Vietnam in his movie. Right. He didn't travel. So everything would happen within, you know, a few miles of his house. And he kind of could reinvent a world, a, a virtual world, if you like. He also had this extraordinary... He was obsessive. He wanted to control and manage everything. He did lots of takes. He wanted to choose takes. He wanted to try out sequences. So before... Final Cut Pro was ever invented before you could buy this stuff for next to nothing or 300 quid or whatever it is going to be. Stanley had created this sort of Frankenstein's monster, which he had, which was all these video cassette machines on top of each other and a bloody great computer in the middle. And at night, with a sort of young guy with him, a sort of nerd who could operate the stuff, Stanley would edit this material. And Warner Brothers had to pay for this. It would cost them about let more than half a million dollars to set it up and he would that's was his so really this was exactly what you know you can now do anyone can now do but then he invented it and it was so interesting rather entertaining that when i took over bbc2 in the mid 80s cuz stanley was doing this already when he was making the shining he said to me alan i i'm going to get a new model of this thing i'm going to get something more developed how about the bbc buying my frankenstein's monster and you can put it in your office i don't know what size you thought our offices were they <laughs> we did actually have offices then as opposed to mm. not having any anymore but and he said and then you can edit all the programs that go out on bbc2 yourself because he knew i was kind of Obsessive, like him. Yeah, I'm just going to say, you, there's, there seems to be obsessive quality with both of you, which is yeah, there was. In, in also, a good I, way. I was never infamously in the time of arena. I was never. I used to sleep in the cutting room, so everyone knows what you would bring in people who didn't have that much experience. You'd given a chance to, and then there would be a woeful cry of, "Oh God, we're in a bit of a mess." And I did this with Mike Lee, who I would own up to this. He, I let him make a film about himself. I was a filmmaker, make a film about himself, and he got stuck. And a plaintive call, and I had to go to the cutting room. He was practically my assistant, you know, sort of, you know, handing over the reels. Uh, and that film still exists. And then many years later, and this is the sort of pleasure of all this, whether it's Salman Rushdie, Mike Lee, or Hanif Qureshi, I've made films about them. 25 years on, you know, when their careers have blossomed and something else has happened. And it's rather extraordinary to be able to continue the story. In 1960, age 17, Mike Lee arrived in London at a time of radical cultural change. There was jazz, international coffee bar, all that stuff. It was a complete blast. 
The exposure to all of this would influence his entire approach to making films. People don't realize today, the new generation of program makers, how lucky they are because the truth is that, you know, putting films together today is so much easier with the technology than oh, it was totally. then. In those days, you would cut a sequence, it didn't work. It's sellotape and razor blades, and then you'd have to unravel it in order to recut it. It was incredibly time-consuming. Um, so it was a much tougher job. I loved editing, and I still do. I'm, you know, forever, I, I love being in a cutting room. You can always make things better, particularly if you make with documentaries. And with this sort of ability to you know, with music, with, with the ability to, to intercut things, to use all kinds of material. And then you have to find a way to tell the story, you know, with words, with music, with pictures. And that is a, a incredible sort of opportunity, which... Um, and, and very satisfying when it works well. Yeah, of course. I mean, well, that's my life anyway, so I... Certainly. ...always like to... SNS Online, Alan Yentob considers the soundtrack of his life. So it's time for the soundtrack of your life, Alan, a musical track that might reflect something uh, personal, professional, or just because it makes your feet tap, or all three. I wondered if you've uh, had any thoughts on that. It's a very, it's a very tricky one, this one, um, because my head is filled with tunes uh, and also, given our conversation, you know, what people call popular ch culture and high culture, you know. Absolutely. And they both have the same impact. Uh, I also got, I've made lots of programs about, I've made a film called How Music Makes Us Feel. I've made films uh, about, you know, the music and the brain with Oliver Sacks and stuff like that. I've had my brain MRI scan while I was listening to music. I can't show that. This looks like it's, the machine is broken. <laughs> <laughs> you have this immense emotional and whole brain reaction. Your whole brain is just like, yeah. it's a deep emotion and yeah. blood flow. And actually, one of the songs I listened to, which made a huge impact on me when I was listening. So maybe I should just, first of all, make my apologies to the Beatles and the Stones, you know, who I love, but nevertheless. And I love Frank Sinatra, frankly. So there are, I've got a very eclectic range and then you know all the musicians I've made films about endless ones so they can't know that I don't love them too <laughs> uh, but it was interesting this because music is a critical part of all our lives you know particularly from even from very early life to very late life people when they're suffering from dementia or gone wrong they still have memories of music which drains them I listened to lots of songs under this MRI scan but the two songs which really had an impact to the extent that the neurologist looking at it was just so gobsmacked at the way that the blood was flowing through my my brain one was a song sung by jesse norman the opera singer it was strauss's four last songs which are really towards the end of his life and it's incredibly beautiful and you hear the human voice and and it was a very very powerful song
Jesse Norman and one of Strauss's four last songs, Going to Sleep, requested by Alan Yentob. And we'll be hearing part two of Alan's music choice later on. And don't forget, if you want to comment on this or any other show, then please like our Facebook page, SNS Online, or Twitter, also SNS Online. All our shows are free and downloadable by searching on SoundCloud for, wait for it, wait for it, SNS Online. I do hope you're taking all this down. We're also on email at snsonlineshow at gmail.com. And finally, don't forget about our brand new extended showcase trailer featuring past guests and acts as the ultimate teaser for all our output. And you can hear that at the end of this program. SNS Online takes a look at BBC Television Centre now and the many memorable programmes made over the years with a former controller of BBC One, Two and Director of Drama, Entertainment and Children's, Alan Yentob. So the BBC's Head of Music and Arts, when did you get the controllership of BBC Two? I got the controllership in the, in the BBC Two in the, in the mid-80s and the reason I got that was that I sort of... I was sitting with, with Brian Wenham, my friend... Uh, he had a very nice um, fridge with wine in it every night so he could go drop by. That was, again, in those days, that's what happened. Mm. Even in my era, I had a fridge with wine in it. Not anymore, I have to <laughs> Good confess. Um, and the Daily Mail didn't seem to be there at that time, you know. Uh, a lot quieter. Unfortunately, yes. Fortunately, <laughs> uh, whatever. So uh, basically, I said, well, who's going to be running music and arts and I was kind of a bit concerned I thought I'm, I'm I mean I thought when I took on arena I thought well I took so long to make single films that I thought I might be unemployable which is why I decided to do arena and then this time I thought well maybe they won't employ me you know maybe so maybe I should do it and he said to me well well why don't why don't you then why should you do it you should do it anyway so I decided I would make myself eligible at that stage, I was being a, sort of pursued by Channel 4 to be the new chief executive of Channel 4 to follow. Yeah. You see, that was going to be one of my questions. Have you ever been, obviously you haven't been seduced by a commercial broadcaster, but did you ever get close to it? Yeah, well, I've, you know, first of all, there's an independent sector out there. So I've been offered things. There's Hollywood out there. I've been offered things. So, and I still am being offered those things. And maybe I'll be picking some of them up now. But I'm passionate about the BBC and always was. And... Yes, I was in one of the short lists for Channel 4, even then, in my early 30s, my 30s anyway, sort of when eventually Michael Grade went and did that job, the man who had appointed me as managing director, as controller of BBC Two. Yes, yeah, so I, I got BBC Two, and um, again, a sort of a different adventure began. And, I, and this is an important point, really. I, The end of my sort of career, or towards the end of it, I, just to reassure you that my career is still going. Um, <laughs> I, I'm now, you know, the last, I've had a sort of double life as well as creative director and making Imagine and stuff like that. So I'm, I think that privilege of being able to sort of carry on making things, but also be spotting talent and making decisions about and understanding the kind of, you know, what the zeitgeist and DNA of the BBC is, you know, as far as you can. It doesn't mean you don't make mistakes, but that you... You, you can make judgments, you know, you know, based on your understanding and knowledge of an organization and its values. But um, people often say to me, Alan, you must be much happier just making programs and doing those things rather than 
uh, you know, being a, a suit. Well, I, I've never been a suit. You know, I'm, I'm, as you can see, I'm wearing my pajamas even now. Well, yeah, you're wearing a, the Bette Midler concert that I, I, I was at as well. Yeah, we I, had better seats than you. I, I did you? <laughs> yes. I, I wear them all the time, you know, basically now for various Well, you're reasons. comfortable, you know. Yes, I, I'm comfortable. So basically, though, that I, what I do believe is in creative leaders. I think it's incredibly important because I think ensuring that other people have the space to do things, spotting talent, allowing people to make mistakes. Uh, I have this phrase I call failing to succeed, you know, but if you don't learn about failure or try things out, you won't succeed. And I think I've got just as much pleasure out of being a creative leader or out of spotting talent and programs and ideas as I have out of, you know, my my own sort of engagement with things. because a lot of people won't re- realise the driving force you've been to have programmes commissioned such as Ab Fab, obviously Strictly Come Dancing, there's a whole host of them. I'm sure you can list them for us. Yeah. No, there have been lots of programmes. I mean, everyone takes, likes to claim, think, you know, I was involved with The Office as well and, um, you know. Well, I mean, it's obviously a committee know. thing, but you, you have had yeah, some serious connection. I don't, know. I don't like the word committee. I don't ah. do committees, okay. so <laughs> let's put it out. But, but clearly... Groups of people, teams, I would say, teamwork is important. Sure. But yes, I have, I do believe, you know, spotting things and you make mistakes. You turn things down, you shouldn't have turned down, but you you move on. But getting a a balance of the right things in a schedule, having things, having a schedule anchored, if you're running BBC One by things which have got a popular appeal, by ensuring the programs you do, even on Imagine, you talk about that mix is very important to me. And if you're doing things which are a bit more difficult, a bit more esoteric, then you have to win the confidence of your own. That's why presenting on BBC One is valuable to me because I know from what I hear and from having done it for 14 years that that people trust me and therefore they may think, well, that's why I called it Imagine, you know, we'll, try, we'll go with him on this one, you know. And um, so it means that they can experience things that normally they wouldn't necessarily experience. I would go with that, definitely. I mean, mm. I've, I can get be seduced by some of the bigger shows like the Bette Midlers and the, the Woody Allens, and yet I learn so much about people I wouldn't necessarily found out about otherwise, like, yeah. you know, some of the architects, etc. Yeah, and in fact, you know, the next short run of Imagine on BBC One, and I am doing some things on BBC Two as well, sort of trying to build an evening. Fantastic. Uh, I, I, I just we put out that Marlon Brando film, oh. as you know, which was great. Uh, and of course, um, followed it with on the waterfront, so you could create a sort of evening, you know. Because Absolutely. I'm still a scheduler, so I'm still you know, where uh, you know where I can. Uh, if we're going to go on Saturday night on BBC Two, then I want it to be an event, and I want it to feel. I want to be entertained too. I don't just want to be talked at, you know, or or, or even informed. I feel, for me, the the phrase inform, educate, entertain. They're best when they all come together, you know. Marlon Brando's Oscar-winning performance in On the Waterfront follows at 10.40. First on BBC Two with some violent scenes and strong language, listen to me Marlon, the man in his own words. Alan Yentob introduces Imagine's insight into a trailblazing but tortured genius. So BBC Two, I think, you know, trying to make it more inquisitive, more adventurous... Um, 
Let's talk about The Late Show, which was your your baby and uh, a labour of love, by my understanding. Tonight on The Late Show, Britain's biggest book prize. Will the NCR Book Award go to the historian, the scientist or the football fan? Yes, absolutely. I mean, The Late Show, I think... We're interesting, we're in a period not dissimilar to that period in the mid-80s. We're talking about a time when the Soviet Union dissolved and became, you know, Russia, when Eastern Europe was liberated, or a lot of it was, uh, when the Berlin Wall came down, when the the fatwa on Salman Rushdie emerged, and I was with him on the day that that fatwa happened, and we were friends, and he was on The Late Show. Um, and um, it was an extraordinary time, and... I think it's an interesting moment now because what we're going through now is, you know, with issues about immigration, about culture, about the economy, about who we are and, you know, all the rest of it. All these issues, all these things, these ideas are are ones which can be reflected and considered uh, on programs. Now, The Late Show and Newsnight together was a kind of really interesting combination, you know, that because they complemented one another. And I think we're living in a world now where uh, there are stories everywhere and where actually, again, this word culture is a much bigger word. It's about society. It's about how we live our lives. It's about who we are. It's about the life of the imagination. It's about what's possible. And so in a way, despite how distressing a lot of the last year or so has been for a lot of people, you know, Brexit, Trump, all these things, not everyone agrees with all this. Um, it means that, you know, people, one of the things it's done is it's waking us all up uh, about how we want to live our lives, who we want to be, and, um, you know, how we value important institutions, the NHS, you know, the BBC, how we, uh, you know, how we look after, you know, older people, how we, you know, there are so many issues out there now to be... Um, uh, to be addressed. And at the same time, you know, culture and the culture and arts program needs to reflect that. I mean, I'm about to, there's a, going to be a run of three programs, uh, well, that four actually, but I'm repeating Bette Medley, you'll be delighted to hear. She's about Fantastic. to do Hello Dolly on Broadway. Oh, right. Yeah, she's doing that in the, about in April. Hmm. Um, and uh, I'm doing three films and then putting out a series of repeats on BBC Two and BBC Four about pioneering women. And um, it's to go with International Women's Day on March the 8th. The first film is about, again, hits this nerve of, have you heard of this person? Well, no, most BBC One viewers will not have heard of her, but they ought to know about her. Her name is Nawal El-Sadawi. She's an Egyptian woman. And I've called this film She Spoke the Unspeakable because this is a woman who was a... Uh, a sort of militant uh, 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 opponent of uh, female genital mutilation. She was um, an opponent of Islamic fundamentalism. She was really essentially a secular person. And um, also she believed in equality and, uh, and, and she was a sort of a liberal and freedom of expression. And I've just been making this film with her in Egypt. And she's remarkable. And then I, a film about Maya Angelou, the uh, the uh, American black American woman who was both a human rights campaigner, uh, a campaigner for against racism, a colleague of 
Martin Luther King. And at the same time, she was a dancer, a singer, a writer, a poet. And she was a um, an incredible sort of outstanding woman in, in American life. And she'd only died a few years ago. That's going out. And then a film about an extraordinary woman artist called Alice Neal, made by her grandson, uh, which, uh, again, another pioneer in a, in a contrary way because she was a, a person who painted human beings in, in so-called portraits at a time when America was obsessed with abstract expressionism and she had to make a living and bring up her children and yet in the end she had this colossal show at the Whitney and finally got the recognition she deserved. And actually over the years, many of these films that I made, you know, whether it's about Toni Morrison, the black American writer, whether it's about Louise Bourgeois, Quite often, these films and these characters have a, a, a social and political dimension. Well, that's what's so wonderful about the arts can encompass that. And I would like to know your feelings about, you know, cuts to the arts and how that has affected not only the BBC, but the, the, the widest of the arena of arts uh, broadcasting. Well, I, I obviously I'm a passionate advocate for the arts and also for the arts being accessible to all and one of the things that's most important about that is that the uh, starting first with the arts institutions and education I don't approve of the taking arts off the syllabus and uh, um, and schools as a, as a kind of critical part of a syllabus I well, especially when you can learn about like for example the films you've just quoted yeah, are, are, are very are. important pieces of work they are and I think that um, what is a problem is that if arts organizations, institutions, aren't able to bring young people into uh, you know, their terrain, their domain, and encourage young people from a very early age to appreciate the arts, either at school or through local museums and galleries and exhibition places, uh, then I think there's a real problem that they, they, you know, when they grow older, they will be able to live without that. And I think it's incredibly important that that happens. And I think that, you know, arts programs on the BBC are to be seen on all its services and channels and not just, uh, uh, you know, on, on, on somewhere or in some sort of coven somewhere. And uh, I think we do, we do have a challenge because essentially uh, the BBC has, has managed to get a, a licence fee settlement, which is, you know, as good as it could have got in the circumstances, but it's still very challenging. And um, it, the expenditure now on drama is very costly there is a lot of competition from um you know from amazon and apple and netflix and others so the challenges in in trying to ensure uh, that the bbc uh, makes programs which are both popular but also programs which on radio and television uh, which inform educate and entertain as well you know the way that they did and which are not done perhaps specialist factual programs science history obviously natural history has got a popular arts uh, but these things are very very important and they're part of the, the the essence of the BBC you're listening to SNS online and now part two of the soundtrack of Alan Yentob's life the other um, is a song again which is is not a it's just again something that always touched me and I found very powerful, but it's certainly not something that people are going to la-la to. It's not la-la land, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, which is Billie Holiday's Strange Fruit. 
the dead men hanging from the trees. This is not my choice, this is my brain responding to your question. Those are the two songs which made uh, the, the blood run to my veins. and strange fruit. You're listening to SNS. And now, Doctor Who, Strictly Come Dancing, and Alan Yentob's personal favourite, Noel's House Party, <coughs> are all looked at under the spotlight. So if we just go through some career highlights, obviously you became controller of BBC One and... Uh, you were involved in getting Doctor Who back, is that true? Well, up to a point it's true. I mean, the truth is, I tried to get Doctor Who. We did a film, and, and the BBC made a film. I don't mean, it wasn't very successful. And I was always a fan, always thought there should be a way back. The fact that you were gunning for it is, means, means an awful lot to me. Yeah, I was gunning for it, absolutely. <laughs> and, and I think, really, the credit has to go to... Um, what's his name? Russell? To Russell. The credit has to go to Russell and to, to Matt... Uh, and um, Stephen, and to Stephen, Mark, so to, to to Russell, to Mark Gattis, uh, and to Stephen, uh, because they had been brought up, you know, t- they just loved Doctor Who, and they understood what was essential about it and special about it. But they realised it had to belong to this next generation as well, and they they just did an amazing job in bringing it back to life. So, yeah, I I was certainly one of those supporters, but. Uh, and up to a point an enabler, but they were the ones who made it happen and made it possible. Excellent. Is it also true that you said that Noel's House Party was the most important TV show on TV? <laughs> that was one of the stupidest things I ever said. <laughs> I, I think when you... I was, I'd was just come to BBC One. I wasn't the, the obvious choice to do BBC One. I, I had run BBC Two very successfully for five years, and but in the end, they, I was trusted with it. And I, you know, I knew that this was one of the most 
um, it got the highest audience ratings and figures. It was, you know, it was an entertainment show on Saturday night of the kind which really had a viewers of 13, 14, 15 million at the time. I mean, just huge, more than that even. Very, very successful. And we were renegotiating Noel Edmonds' contract. And at the time, I, I, I sort of was wanted him to make him feel good, but I deeply regretted it the moment I said it. So there you are, these things <laughs> well, happen. However, I have no apologies to make about the show in the time. I think he can... I think Noel Edmonds can be a bit of an ass, as he was when he said, uh, you know, he'd like to take over the BBC. Mm -hmm. uh, but nevertheless, that moment um, of Noel's house party was a fun moment. It was a kind of live show. It was incredibly skillfully put together. It was entertaining. And uh, it was one of those Saturday night shows of its time. Absolutely. W was it quite difficult of the transition from BBC Two to BBC One? Did you really have to sort of rethink some of the basics to, um, to make it work? I, I'm more intuitively a BBC Two person, but I did have to. It was great. It was like a different challenge. You know, OK, you've done that. Don't be, you know, now think what you do here. And obviously the big issue in BBC One was drama, getting that right. And we, I worked very hard to try to get that right. And there were uh, great shows came out of it, including famously Pride and Prejudice, which was, you know, as memorable as ever. Uh, and many other shows which did well and many talents which are now out there, great writers and others. The, the fact is that clearly you had to focus hard on drama and clearly things like sports rights were very important, trying to hold on to those and make those happen. People don't realise that actually the news really underpins also um, BBC One schedule. If you think about now, even more so now than ever before, if you think about the regional news, the six o'clock news, the 10 o'clock news. Do you know the size of those audiences today? And as other audiences have declined, those audiences have risen. Mm. Also the challenge of Saturday night, you know, uh, getting the right shows for Saturday night, f finding through almost serendipity, Strictly Come Dancing and mm. getting that on air when actually I'd been the person who cancelled Come Dancing, mm. which because it seemed that time had gone. I also uh, famously or infamously uh, cancelled uh, Jimmy Savile's Jim Will Fix It program as well um, wow. at, at the time because I just thought it had run out of, you know, it was out of time. Were um, you aware of, sorry, this is quite straight between the eyeballs, but did you have any inkling of what was going on at the time? No, I didn't. I didn't have any inkling of it as the, the woman who's written the report made absolutely clear in her report, but um, I didn't know. I thought he was rather creepy, but I didn't really know much about him. Uh, and really, by the time I sort of got rid of that show, you know, I I didn't, uh, you know, it was many years before the rest of it was revealed. But clearly, the BBC has to take responsibility for for, for, for part some responsibility for what happened, and for a kind of complacency, and an era that was very different. Uh, and um, really, you know, I think we've been punished enough for that. Can you imagine? Alan Yentov can on SNS Online. Now, clearly, some imagined documentaries, uh, you are at the centre 
of and others are films which have been especially brought in. Now, are these um, actually commissioned or, or do you seek out other people's work? No, well, some some films are commissioned or co-commissioned, but the ones that are not, which I find, yes, and that, that's partly two reasons. One, that they're good films and I, I've heard about them and I haven't had access to them. Secondly, it also helps the budget because making films is more more expensive. Some films, like when Julian's films and music films, I'm very closely involved in the making of those, but there there are films, but I don't appear in them because that's the nature of those films. So, um, yes, I'm always on the lookout for things. And at the front of those films, we call it Imagine Presents when we put those films up. If, like me, you love New York, then how could you not love Woody Allen? And if, like me, you happen to be Jewish, you love movies, and you love New York, then you're in for a treat. No one quite represents a city like Woody represents New York. It plays a leading role in most of his films, alongside Woody himself, of course, with his dark-rimmed glasses and his trademark neuroses. It took the filmmaker Robert Wydie over 20 years to persuade the director of Manhattan, of Hannah and her sisters and Annie Hall, to open up about everything, from growing up in Brooklyn to his life as a stand-up comic to his obsessive, compulsive career as a filmmaker who still in his mid-70s insists on making at least one film a year. You're listening to a feature-length SNS Online with my special guest, Alan Yentob. And now on SNS Online, fingers on buzzers for Alan Yentob's quickfire questions. Number one, who won that arm wrestle between you and Salman Rushdie in W1A? Well, I mean, just see what happens in here. Right, no, that, that's something else. Who do you think? OK, we'll move swiftly on. He's waving his... another thing, which you might be... That's interesting you asked me that question, because, as you may know, I was hacked by the uh, Daily Mirror and I was given a big award of um, damages. And uh, at the end, the end of a trial, after I'd given my evidence, the judge said to me, by the way, Mr. Yentov, it's not strictly relevant, but I'd very much like to know who won that arm wrestling contest, ah! you or Mr. Rushdie. Fantastic. And I'm afraid it was so unexpected that I, I, I couldn't find an answer to the question, really. And it was in front of the entire court. Imagine all the South Bank show. Oh, don't be ridiculous. <laughs> Twitter or Facebook? Neither. I don't do either of them. I, I, I have, there are fake, I have a fake, there's been a fake Twitter account for me for ages, you know, and fake email account. I mean, there are so many fakes out there. And before the word, you know, fake news came out, there was lots of fake stuff. So I, I have actually, I explored Facebook and Twitter and I explored them early on because I've done a lot of programs about the internet. And so, f- in order to make those programs, I put myself on Facebook, but I don't really work it. The one thing I do a bit of privately is Instagram. Aha. Uh-huh. Under a pseudonym, presumably. No, I have my name, but it's private, so I have a very f- only my friends. I don't do Instagram, so I wouldn't know how it works. No, it's so. private. Delia or Nigella? Well, Nigella is my great friend, so. Nigella. That's fair enough. And also, she's cooked for me a lot, and I've cooked for her, so. 
Who's a better cook? <laughs> well, as far as I know, I've eaten lots of meals cooked by Nigella, and she's a wonderful cook, and she's even eaten meals cooked by me. I have another favorite cook, which is Ruthie Rogers of the River Cafe fame and all those books, so I love, and it's my favorite restaurant of all. Tom Baker or Peter Capaldi? Well, I thought they were both good in their time, and I, I'm a fan of... Uh, obviously, I know Peter better because, I, you know, he's a... You know, around now, and um, I think they've both done great. They're both, they're both part of this extraordinary sort of heritage, you know, that we've got, you know, and uh, they both have their place. So, so, what's your take on the female doctor? I have been phoned up by newspapers and uh, things and <laughs> refused to comment on it. I mean, essentially, it's, uh, you know, they've got a really good new exec who's a writer, a writer exec there now, and bluntly, I think that's a decision, you know he must make and Charlotte will get involved and the rest of it and I don't want to preempt it by saying what I think. Off, off the record, I wouldn't mind if it was a woman actually, I think it'd be fine. Off the record, I feel the same? Yeah. There you go. What, uh, what gets you angry? Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> we could be here all night. <laughs> we could be here all night, but no. I suppose in relation to the BBC, if I think things are happening which I don't think should be happening, it, get, it might get me irritated and angry, but I try to do something about it. So really, essentially, um, my children sometimes get me angry and they're not quite children anymore. Um, I'm, not, I'm not someone who gets too angry. I, I try to kind of find a way through things. Okay. Have you ever regretted meeting one of your heroes? You can name if you want or not. Not really, no. I've I, I, the people I've met who I've made programs about and made friends with, ultimately people who I've admired or whatever. No, they they haven't tended to disappoint me, and maybe because I'm I'm not sort of I haven't got illusions about what people are and who they should be. I mean, I'm interested in you know knowing people with their failings as well and sharing some of that. So I know I, I I've I've not sort of met someone and felt you know completely let down. No. And that's the end of Quickfire Questions. Alan Yentop was clear. The impact of the closure of Kids Company had hit hard. And it's all third party. I am shocked that you can sit here and talk. And this is why you say, why am I here? I'm here today because I think this amount of rumour... Tonight, Mr Yentop told News at 10, I highlighted that, in my view, there had already been serious consequences but I took care not to But it's sure to include a range of people from news and current affairs to entertainment. Right, I am saying... you were chairman of the trust. Yes, so can I just say, I d it is not, there is not financial mismanagement, OK? Am I allowed to say that? The BBC's Alan Yentob gets his chance to respond to certain tabloid headlines now on SNS Online in Right to Reply. I'm certainly no Paxo here, but um, it wouldn't be worth my salt as an interviewer if I didn't at the very least um, touch on some of the, uh, shall we say, less friendly words and observations and newspaper headlines, etc. in recent years. I certainly don't want to get into any specifics, uh, such as kids' company, because I'm simply not qualified uh, to do so. But with regard to questions about salaries, etc., do you feel that cuts in the arts has actually impacted on a personal level to people like yourself, essentially becoming an easy target? I don't, I don't think. I think the, the issues about me and the papers is really much more to do with 
you know, the fact that, frankly, for certain newspapers, you know, the Daily Mail, the you know, even the Telegraph, you know, some of some, you know, various newspapers, uh, the BBC is is seen as a, a, a sort of a, comp, a competitor, a problem, and I'm recognisable. I have an interesting life. I I get paid a salary which hasn't changed in 12 years, but because it was split in two, it's called two salaries, you know. Uh, they seem to never get bored at the Daily Mail about writing about me in that way. Uh, you have to put up with it in the end. You know, I, I I have had to put up with it, and I still put up with it, you know, because it still goes on. Or, And, you know, you just have to believe that what you're doing is the right thing and uh, care passionately about what you're doing and try to do it as well as you possibly can. And, and I believe that I'm a sort of, uh, someone who understands the value of the BBC, that I've run all the channels. Uh, I've been director of television, director of production, and I, I've been a program maker. And um, I believe that in the end, the BBC is sort of can get things wrong. And when we get things wrong, we have to acknowledge that we have. We've been through difficult times, and we continue to. But what's important about the BBC since the the late seventies, early eighties? And I know John Burt often gets criticised by people, but I think he, he understood that the BBC had to think about the future and where it sat. And the BBC has invested in digital. It has actually tried to understand where the technology was taking us and uh, and also tried to, despite the fact that it's a huge organisation, that it's very, very carefully regulated, that you could call it a bureaucracy at times, that, it, that it's actually put programmes first. And that is important that it continues to do that. from the Beeb. <laughs> this is my friend Mark. He will be underscoring this interview, which I think will be a first. I don't know of an interview that's ever been underscored. I'm sure the BBC has done it all. That would be good. Why don't you underscore the entire interview? I, I don't want to. Oh, come on. And finally tonight on SNS Online, Last Word with Alan Yentob. But just before that, a big debt of thanks to the belle of BBC continuity, Marion Marshall. Oh, thank you, Nick. Don't forget your goodie bag. Oh, how wonderful. Just for one, the others for Alan. Oh, of course. The Guardian have suggested uh, you are a figure of indulgence in a land of scarcity, and uh, other people have described you as a maverick. Um, would you describe yourself, would you be happy to be described as the BBC's jar of Marmite, Alan Yentop? I don't know what that means. What does the BBC Well, some people like Marmite, some people hate it. Not really, no, I wouldn't really be pleased to be remembered for that. I mean, I've been called lots and lots of things. It's not I, from me. No, well, I don't care who it is from. I mean, there, I've been called lots of things that... One way or another, um, I've been called lots of more complimentary things by people who know as well. So, I, I mean, the truth is that that's, you know, you know, what you're called is really irrelevant, really. What I hope I've done is to make programmes that of quality that people have liked. You know, I've won lots of BAFTAs, I've won Emmys, I've won all those things, accolades of different kinds. 
Uh, I'm passionate about the arts. Uh, it's certainly been a privilege for me doing them. And at the same time, I've helped to shape the BBC and the channels and its values. And, you know, people have called me the soul of the BBC as well. And, the, you know, the conscience of the BBC, the director general called me the other day. So, you know, I've, I've had... Uh, I've had sort of criticism and I've had uh, you know, accolades, you know, and, and essentially they're not the point. The point is, you know, what your legacy will be and what you've done. And I, I hope that people who know me and who've worked with me will know that, you know, whatever mistakes may have been made, I've had the BBC's interests at heart all the way through and I've represented those values. Alan Yentob, thank you. Well, we're not quite done yet. Take a listen to this. Scratch and sniff. Scratch and sniff? Scratch and sniff! I didn't know I was agreeing to that. (laughs) I thought those days were over. I really enjoy working in small theatres. I don't like the huge, spectacular shows, you know. I quite like to see the audience. The whites of their eyes. Yeah, not quite, (laughs) not quite. I'm glad I'm not Emily Dickinson. What a miserable life led she. She didn't have Cadbury's dairy milk and nobody came for tea. My father said, dentistry would be a very useful uh, career for you. You can use it any country in the world and as a Jew you might be thrown out any time. Still it remains in me that, that possibility. I think all good actors are trying to shine a light on what it means to be human. You know, and to look at human behaviour and and to look at contradiction. And this is what and David Bowie saw. This. Is this true? David Bowie saw this and then uh, wanted you to make a documentary about him. Yes, he asked me if I'd like to meet up, and would I, he liked what he saw. And I mean, thought, what a compliment! Yeah, it, it kind of was. Maybe Fantastic. it was a rash judgment to make. <laughs> and this woman came up to me. She said, "Now tell me, have you made any movies?" And I said, well, no, I haven't been to Betty Ford yet. Well, if I could have gone through that floor. (laughs) And somebody came pounding across the beach at me. I thought, oh, no, not here, not now. Leave me running towards me, running towards me. And I... And they ran straight past me. (laughs) (laughs) By hook or by crook, I ended up meeting them in their hotel. The words breaking in are so vulgar. For a 16-year-old Beatlemaniac <laughs> to spend eight days with John and Yoko, I still don't believe it. And then I was with Douglas mm. uh, Adams. I will always remember Douglas's immortal words. She can't sing, she can't dance, she can't act. What's the good of her? <laughs> and for some reason I was insulted. And then the door opened and I went, Blimey, you're Shelley Winters. And she said, and who are you? And I said, I'm Derry Foles. And she put her tongue right down my throat. (laughs) 
I never saw her again the rest of the evening. Are you enjoying now far more than you were enjoying the height of your success? No, because at the height of my success, I was on private jets and limousines and I wouldn't be stuck in a pub with the likes of you. <laughs> well, that's charming, that is. And Britt Eklund turned and gave me a smile such as you have never seen. And I got this wonderful, utter, total attention until she realised I was absolutely no use to her whatsoever and it was all turned off as though the light was oh, turned. Oh, no! She did make me laugh. And also by the Scotsman, uh, apparently you are tender, frightened and convincing. I mean, it's working for me. <laughs> I've made Sandy Walsh blush, but in a, in a good way. It was for me, being in the supermarket in Accrington and my elderly ladies coming up to me and saying, when are you and Marie getting married? And me saying, well, we're not allowed to because Hayley's transgender and, and them going, never mind that, they should be together. And that's the way to change the world. I'd say about yeah. this film is it's perfect to take someone on a date to because... Because you don't have to at, talk to them. Yeah. Did you do the old yawn, arms around the back? <laughs> creeping down the front. It was very I'm, tempting. I'm doing a bit. <laughs> Sliding the bra out of the top, yeah. <laughs> it's an art to that. I interviewed on the same day Idi Amin and Harold Pinto. Difficult for me to say who was most difficult and intimidating of <laughs> the two of them. Well, I mean, were you in the same room as these uh, I was in the same room as Harold Pinto. I oh. wasn't necessarily in, but I, I collected them. That's probably the best put choice them together that too. <laughs> yeah, Harold always was, but we became good friends over the years yeah. and I didn't continue my relationship with Idi Amin, I can tell you that. <laughs> and I had a terrible problem because my Hamlet kept treading on my very pointed toe shoes, you see, so I had to kind of keep trying to leave the stage but of course I couldn't because he was on the foot. And it was written as this sort of very camp thing and I actually knew a couple of people that auditioned for it and they said, oh, it's this very sort of camp actory type. Mm. I thought, well, I could do that. But it said, Len is tall and uh, Mark Gator sent me an email and said, will you give me a ring? And I thought... He's not doing that to tell me I've got it. Uh, he's just being nice because he is the nicest man in the world. And he said, look, we've, we loved what you did, but... And I said, you've gone for somebody tall, haven't you? And he went, yeah. <laughs> I could never get an agent for years because of my disability, so I had to be my own, which was good for me, actually, because it taught me a lot of discipline. And so I'm negotiating the right fee, hopefully. Okay. <laughs> yeah, not as good on that one. More about getting the role. Now, what makes this film interesting is that it's actually really the story about two men, because J. Edgar Hoover, for so all of the... <laughs> <laughs> Look, Nick, there's not much man-on-man action in this uh, movie. But yeah, what it is, okay, is a sort of story Just about... Just very intense here, right? <laughs> go on, go on. It's a story about... Uh... <laughs> We haven't done this readers for a couple of months. Uh, so, anyway, go on. Okay. Yes, it's better be good. So, <laughs> <laughs> so basically, J. Edgar Hoover, famously, was he gay? And I just think, actually, that if you don't have older actors and older actresses, you're not really getting a view of a balanced society. How much can you tell us about Mary Poppins and uh, can you succumb to tickling or bribery? Um, neither, because otherwise <laughs> I'll just get a huge smack bottom from Disney. Um, uh, uh, I can only tell you that it's going to be great. <laughs> and there are amazing people in it. And if you, if you know. know who's in Meryl it, Street, I mean, Meryl Street, Emily Street, and uh, Emily and Colin Firth. Mm -hmm. and Meryl Street's a bit overrated, I think. <laughs> oh, apparently. Sad! Exclamation mark. And then there was a guy 
he was supposed to shout something from the wings and he didn't come on. And I, very oh. quick thinking, because I've got a very deep voice, I rushed off to do this old character who actually was still in the toilet. Okay. And I went off and I went, and the line was, Give me some light. And then I ran back on as Ophelia. <laughs> I've made up for it. I, yeah. I've spent many, many years since making amazing commercials, teaching people how to make sure that they don't get infected with STIs. Oh, right. That's so lovely. I'm, I'm, I'm the voice of chlamydia. So the review came in the next day. The first Ophelia to start out mad and go slowly sane. My simple mantra is never accept the world as it is. Dream of what the world could be and then help make it happen. No, I love it. Carol Decker on Scratch and Sniff with a goodie bag. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed it tremendously. And uh, thank you for, for picking up on so many things that I'd, I'd actually forgotten about. Did Katie get all this? Oh, yes, she got all this, yeah. No, wonderful. Tell you, Nick, it's been a total pleasure. I should get highly drunk. Thank you very much. What an enjoyable interview.